Hey everyone, welcome back to this in-between episode. This is the unedited version of a conversation between Peter Arnott, Ed Coughlin, and Ollie Logan, and myself as we are talking about skill acquisition and some of the myths around practice and training and how we get better at golf. If you like the concise version of things, if you want to skim through something and get the important details, listen back to our last episode or wait for next week's as those are nice, concise versions of an entire conversation. If you love the details, if you love hearing every aspect of this, listen to this. You're going to love it. This series of episodes is sponsored by two folks, Gravity Fit. Make sure to check them out in the last episode and TGW.com, the golf warehouse. Great spot to pick up all of your gear. All right, let's get into this chat. Just to start out, could I get you guys to do like a, I don't know, a 60 second kind of bio for, for all, all three of you guys, just a quick rundown who you are that we can use. Pete, we'll start with you because you, you're uh, such an experienced professional here. <laughs> I'm a fre- frequent flyer. Uh, yeah, I'm a golf coach. Well, hi, Cordy. I'm a golf coach based in Edinburgh. I just moved to Swanston Golf Club. Interested practice, research, kind of skill acquisition and more learning. Yeah, put simply, kind of how to practice better and how to create, you know, kind of learning environments in golf. Currently just about to finish my master's uh, interviewing European tour players, but we've kind of discussed that before on Golf Science Lab, haven't we? Perfect. Perfect. Next up, feel free, whoever. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm uh, hi, Courtney, and I'm Ed Colin. I'm based in, in Cork Institute of Technology in Cork in Ireland, and my background is in sports science. My PhD was in skill acquisition, and my... I suppose my work outside of being an academic is is in the the practice space of developing practice environments that replicate as strongly as possible the environments that players and athletes experience when they compete. Um, and I try I work to develop strong transfer spaces. Um, so the work from a golf related perspective in relation to a podcast like this is. Only a couple of years old um, for for the kind of 15 or so years before that, it was always in in quite discrete type skills within team sports and, and not even in team sports. But um, so shooters in basketball, kickers in rugby, kickers in Gaelic football, strikers in hurling, penalty takers in hockey and so on and so forth. And in the last couple of years dipped into golf sport that I would have played all my life and grew up in quite a golf oriented family, but never worked in it in the capacity I have as a practice coach over the last couple of years. So that's it. Perfect. And uh, yeah. Hi, Cordy again. Thanks. Thanks for the invite onto the uh, podcast. So uh, my name is Ollie Logan and my kind of background is in biomechanics and and skill acquisition. I currently work for British swimming. So I I work with uh, all of their, their top swimmers uh, looking at, kind of biomechanical, biomechanical analysis of their swimming technique and then looking at the skill acquisition interventions of, of kind of those of those techniques. I've been doing that for 18 months. Before then, I was working for a company called the English Institute of Sport, where I was, again, biomechanist and kind of skill acquisition lead for a number of sports, particularly execution of skill under pressure sports, as I would term them. So kind of uh, archery, gymnastics, a little bit with diving, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have much experience working in golf. However, in speaking with a number of golf coaches and the likes of Peter and Ed and on, on other kind of Skype calls, 
very very similar um, training and mental processes that go on. So so hopefully my my lack of golf knowledge, even though I was a single handicapper when I was a, when I was a kid, isn't going to limit me too much on this uh, on this podcast. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Pete, where do you want to start? I know you had mentioned like feel versus real, talking about some of that, some of block practice, talking about some of that. There's so many avenues we could go down. <laughs> do you want to talk with, uh, I mean, talking about like the, because you want to talk about how block practice can be useful, correct? How it's not always. Uh, no, no. I, I said we, that's something we could touch on. I think, uh, and this is just my opinion. <laughs> These guys might rip me to shreds, but uh, I think block practice is useful sometimes when you are, but it's not in my, I suppose, the way I deem rock practice, it's like more exploratory behavior. If you're trying to kind of maybe do a technical feel, it's okay to hit a seven iron 30, 40 times in a row if you're trying to muck about with a, a feel. But then it's like, you know, with a coach kind of maybe putting constraints in there or, or you know, a little bit of feedback there. And then this is just, I mean, my opinion but like then it's you know you mix it up a bit and then you you if they, if they find something then you make it more real shall we say and get lots of different clubs and i just think sometimes when you're 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 doing some technical work if you make it really chaotic becomes just there's too much stimulus there, there's too much going on for the player let me maybe set a set a scene here, Pete. Um, so so someone is, is is listening or they're saying like, hey, I'm I'm you know working on my golf swing or I'm trying to improve you know how I hit a golf ball, and they're standing on the driving range and they've heard of the ideas of block and and random practice and maybe mm-hmm. they've heard something that says random is better, so they're doing everything random. They're they're grabbing driver and then seven iron and then such and such and yeah. and doing that while trying to improve how they're striking the golf ball right or something like that yeah yeah so throwing it to you guys like what what are your thoughts on on that like it you know they're trying they might try to do random practice because they heard that somewhere maybe it was on this podcast <laughs> and so they're <laughs> they're trying to do that right and they are because they've heard block practice is bad yeah yeah i think from 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 my perspective I think block practice has its has its place, particularly when an athlete or a player wants to kind of build that short term confidence in something. So, from for me, when when I work with coaches and when we work with athletes, we'll we'll use block practice when we want to get a, a short term performance gain, especially. And and I, I'd want to highlight that that block practice is probably kind of for me associated to to kind of quick gains in in that specific task. However, I would see a distinction in its ability to to um, get adequate learning out of it as well. For me, I wouldn't use block practice for for a long term learning and, and retention. Um, but it definitely has its it definitely has its place for me in in kind of early engagement in a task where where the learner isn't that familiar with with the task or with the technique, or when you want to kind of gain confidence. And for people who are, who are playing about with kind of blocked and random practice, and particularly the random practice, they do need an element of patience. The need because because they're not potentially going to get those or see those kind of short term benefits, but actually learning actually takes a longer period of time than than that kind of short term performance that you might see off of block practice. When you say that to gain confidence, I'm really curious. Like for an elite performer to to gain confidence for short term performance, give me an example example of that, or what does that mean? Well, uh, yeah, I guess a couple of scenarios. One might be. Um, 
One might be where they've had a, a poor performance. So maybe if I, I, I try and take a golf example where they've, they've had a poor round and they felt that they they've, were poor in their short game or, or some part of their game, then maybe there might be a, a, a rule for that and going straight down to the driving range and just hitting a number of those kind of style of shots in that block practice just to regain their confidence back in that shot, kind of moving back to their kind of default shot, as it were. An example that I have in my world is, again, just prior to competition, actually what we do is probably a little bit of block practice and, and competition uh, and, sorry, coaches would would just, you know, say, hey, that looks great. And, and there's, there's a bit of psychological element there. So it, it kind of varies kind of where you are in relation to competition as well. Uh, those are probably the examples that, I, that I'd see it used. If I, if I can jump in there, um, yeah. just I think there's an interesting discussion around block practice going on for for decades to be to be honest i think one of the things i'm i'm seeing uh, in more recent years is that it's it's almost impossible to do block practice and when we actually go back to the what the definition of block practice actually was and where it came from let's say from those early studies of you know working on three tasks a b and c and block practice is a load of a then followed by a load of b and followed by a load of c compared that to random practice when i do uh, a, B, C, D, and randomize it, and so on and so forth. Because when we actually know what we know about variability of movement, it's it's extremely difficult to to actually engage in in any kind of practice that this it's the same thing happening. So there's a part of me almost feels like it, it needs it it almost needs a redefinition that it's it's hard it's not so much block practice but control practice that if we're actually trying to do the exact same thing every time which people may may use the term block practice that that is for me detrimental in in any shape or form i think before performance or not just after a bad performance or not if if we're working on trying to hyper control a movement i think we're, we we go into a very dangerous space there and i think like there's a paper that Myself and two collaborators, Mark Williams and Paul Ford, we have currently in review where we looked at where we looked at in intense practice. And from the outside looking in, it's block practice. All the all the participants did was the same task. But when we actually infused with that task some reflective practice, there was no other there was no other distinguishable part of the practice that actually looked like block practice apart from just the task because every time we asked them to reflect it had a it had a cleaning of the slate effect on the practice so then each time they went back to the exact same task that they would have done previously but they had they were now approaching it like it was a new task again and because of how complex our, the system is to, to try and replicate any movement twice let alone three four five fifty times I think that the, the, that's where maybe a bit of distinction needs to come in. I think what we what we call block practice isn't really what the original definition of block practice is, and it's kind of. And I think, as I said, if 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 we maybe slightly alter it into control practice, which I would see a lot of happening in golf, where you've got guys on the range breaking down their swing, and they'll stop their swing at position one. And they'll do that five times and then they'll then they'll come up and then they'll go to position two in their backswing and they'll do that five times. And, and he, after each of the each of the times they stop mid mid backswing, they then try to execute the, the normal swing. And you're 
they, they're in a space there where they're actually trying to control their practice. And that for me is, is very different to black practice when you consider the idea of just trying to repeat a task, a whole task, be that a full golf swing, it's just not possible. And I think, you know, the, the idea of what's what's behind the task and the context and all of that is important. But I think there there may be a need, maybe, maybe we're moving into a new space where we need to be, we need to distinguish even black practice a bit more. Um, because as, as I said, some of the detrimental work that I see in all sports of when we have athletes trying to control the very minutia of a movement I find to be quite a quite a dangerous space for their for from a performance perspective. I think I think just two bits to add on that is is, is probably when Ed was talking there, um, the the words repetition mm-hmm. and kind of either perfection of a of a perfection and repetition of a goal standard technique kind of came to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that that again for me is probably a kind of a aligns with what Ed is saying in terms of a controlled or or block practice, so we say controlled practice. Mm-hmm. Like, in technical sports, I see a lot of that. The you you have a a defined goal standard of technique, mm-hmm. and you want to try and repeat that over and over and over again. Uh, and often those those defined goal standards of techniques are actually subjective and are based on on observations of other people rather than actually what's required for the individual that that you're working with. I also think when you consider the, the consider the level of information that we have nowadays like pete you and i spoke a couple of weeks ago about how effective and useful trackman can be but in the wrong hands how dangerous it can be and you look you look at even the use of trackman to even just to 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 see you know can a swing be replicated can a guy swing and hit a, a six iron the exact same spin rate with the exact same launch angle with the exact same trajectory with the exact same you know everything happen. And it just doesn't happen. But if but if they are tr- if they are aiming to be able to look down to the screen after every swing and see the exact same numbers, it's it's going to be a very long road for that for that guy for that player, you know. And yeah. and I think what the 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 brilliance of the technology that we have nowadays is that it further emphasizes the amount of variability that these players are actually having to contend with. And rather than trying to control the variability in the movement, they should they should be looking to almost make peace with the fact that I, I, I can't. And even the very best guys in the world right now, you know, the and again, you were talking about that, that, that podcast you had previously about the stats. That was a brilliant podcast to hear how bad the stats actually are, you know, how, how many top pros are, you know, maybe 50 percent from outside from 10, 10 to 15 feet. Yeah, we, we see a lot of guys who who beat themselves up when they miss from 10 feet. And you're like, geez, you know, the very, very best in the world are about 50 percent from there. So <laughs> because, again, of all the other variables, forget about the swing and forget about the put and stroke, but even the variables of the grain and the green and the, the marks from spikes and the, every other thing that we that we just have to almost make peace with. And I think that's. That, that's where I. That's where I'm. You know, the chats I'll be having with with Pete and 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 guys like him. It, that's what's so exciting about about the golf space right now. I think is because I think there's a genuine appreciation that it, it's the essential place for a swing coach is 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 always going to be there. But I think there's more and more of those guys getting an awareness of maybe it's not so much about his control, but almost 
realizing that I, what I can't control and just making and accepting that, you know? Let me maybe get some clarity here on, so black practice, a lot of the issues that I see with it, with folks is the last round that I was out, I, you know, let's just say I was slicing my irons. So, you know, I go to the driving range and I grab my seven iron and I put down the bucket and I, and I start hitting shots, right? I hit a couple good, then I hit a bad one. And so then I try to, you know, pull on my jar of swing tips and I pick one and I try it. It didn't work after another five shots. I hit another bad one. So then I go to a different one. And then, you know, after about 10 minutes, I'm frustrated and I'm just hitting balls as quickly as I can, hoping that I can find something that works. And that's kind of one area is is you end up frustrated or you end up checked out because you're just, it's not that mentally engaging, right? You're just cognitively, you're not involved in the process. Like those are a couple like symptoms mm-hmm. that I see with block practice just as, as an observer, right? What would you guys say to that? Or what would you be looking for instead of that? Pete? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's a kind of worm, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's a case study of one, isn't it? You, you need to kind of understand the person. That's kind of what I was alluding to earlier on. My, my kind of definition of block practice and would be, you know, hitting, trying to as the guys alluded to, like hitting the same shot over and over again, trying to perfect, you know, repeat the perfect swing. Uh, whereas what I was trying to kind of allude to there was kind of more exploratory behaviour and hitting the same a club is okay because you're trying to get used to that too. But if you've got no feedback there and you're kind of, I see so many golfers kind of wandering in the dark. So I think that a, a good coach can help you kind of channel your energies of where to kind of look, if that makes any sense at all. I think yeah. I think it does. And I think actually, Carter, you, you hit the nail on the head in even your description of what Pete called a case study is that you use the term like, you know, I, I started hitting quicker and quicker and more and more. I'd look for you. You're, you're chasing something when you get to that spot. Yeah. I think yeah. that's one thing I would see a lot in the last couple of years in, in the golf space. In the, which I would have seen in all other practice spaces in other sports that I'd have seen previous is that idea of of rushing to a conclusion. And if it, golf, because of how complex it is, like it's not just it's not just a movement sport. Because as as we say, like a, you know, if if we want a quick definition of what it's all about, you know, the the the, the most basic of, of of skill acquisition is is just when you're using your body, and that's difficult enough as it is because it's so complex to control it all. And then you add in an implement that you have to engage with, and that makes it even more challenging again. And that might be in a sport where you're not having to hit something, but you're just having to you use an implement, be that uh, you know a, ba- a basketball or soccer, and that's all you're doing. And then you add in in golf where you have a club that's trying to hit a ball. The degrees of freedom are just exponentially going through the roof every time we're adding another thing. And probably the most complex one of them all is polo because you're on a horse with a club and a ball, you know. And every time we're adding another one of these, but take a step back from polo and you're still at golf. And it's so, so complex. But we we were chasing something like, as you were saying, I, wa- I want to get there quickly. And as opposed to chasing the the perfect swing, it, it might just be about trying to connect, as you were saying, those swing thoughts, those really helpful and useful swing thoughts that, the, that, that coaches give you. But maybe what the end point looks like is 
is unattainable. So maybe it's the end point, the outcome needs to change, let's say, to to ease the anxiety that players experience that they that they're chasing so much, let's say. Just just on that, Cordy, it's interesting that you 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 mentioned you would you dip into your jar of, of swing tips. Mm-hmm. Probably what, what you'd receive from I don't know, either coaches or, or from, from peers. And you know, I, I'm making the assumption that those are are varied in either kind of an internal focus or a position of a, of a body segment or somewhere you have to aim at or stuff like that. And I think, again, I see a lot of athletes when, when, they're, when they're having issues with what they would call technique, I would probably more refer to a skill. They want to then go away into like a, a more quiet environment and break it down and try and problem solve. And actually what they're doing there is slowing everything down, really paying a lot of attention to the minutia of the technique of the skill. When actually what, what we try and encourage the athletes to do is is go away and clear the mind, maybe listen to some music and just let your body return to its defaults, like swing pattern or default movement pattern. Um, because you're trying to search for something there that, that trying to force something, as kind of Ed has said. And always, again, when certainly when I'm working with athletes is, is when they feel that they've lost the feel of, of, of the technique is I try and get them in a space where they can return to default and, and feel happy with the movement again. And often that, that is more difficult by really focusing and really trying to slow things down and, and almost being quite internally focused. I really like that. If I can just jump in, I really, really like that. And it's, it actually, it, it, what you described there, Cordy, is, is quite common. You go, you play your round, something's not right, you go to the range. And one thing that I've done over the last over the last while is, okay, no problem going to the range if you're after a round or something, but you've got to have a very clear purpose why and even just by encouraging them to come up with a purpose, it kind of goes to what Ali was saying there. They've got to actually, the, the, the players have to go and go go into themselves to have a bit of a quiet time to actually identify, well, what, why am I going here? And it's amazing the impact that just slowing them down so they so they don't sprint from the 18th green to the to the range. Just see if I can slow them down just long enough for them to think clearly what is the purpose of of me going to the range now and it's not a few a few things there's got to be just one one reason one purpose because then i think if you if you're going if you're going there with a single purpose because you've had the time like ali says there just to just to reset take a few deep breaths go away and just chill out for a sec before you go straight to the range now now do you have a purpose and only one that radically reduces the likelihood of of it becoming a game of chasing if you're going there for a particular reason, and it may be, I didn't, I didn't get my, I, I don't feel I got enough shoulder turn, or I didn't feel like I released enough. Whatever. Okay, well, let, let's just go in there, just, just to work on that, because that, that's something that's much more likely to be attainable. In and again, back to what even Peter was saying, or, or maybe it was Ali about you get it was Ali, you get you get a bit of confidence then, you know, and all of a sudden we're all all the different elements of performance and practice link in, a bit of confidence, a bit of motivation. Then okay, I'm only going in here to do this one thing. It it it, it narrows your focus a little bit to get you know, as opposed to going over there. And you're not quite sure. You you hit it right on the seventh, and you geez, you hit it left on the ninth, and you skied it on the on the twelfth, and you're going in here. Like, <laughs> I've just got to find something because it was going everywhere. And you're thinking, okay, that's that's when that's when it can become very frustrating because it's really challenging for a for a player to to lock that down unless there's a really clear purpose. And I, that's why I really like what Ali said there. 
Send them away first. Don't don't rush straight into it. Yeah. Let's just ca- cool the jets down a little bit first and, and get a bit retrospective and introspective to really to really nail down why we're going here. You know, because, you know, you, you might you might need to go there at all. You might t- tee it up the next day and it will be fine. Yeah, that's, that's something that's come out in um, my master's interview in European tour players. A few, a few of them talked about searching on the range, you know, spending hours in the range trying to find a golf swing. A couple of guys talked about even going past the stage of they were hitting it great and just because they were bored and had nothing to do, <laughs> they went past the, you know, started tinkering with the golf swing because, you know, they had hours to, for their tea time. And guys talking about making drastic changes, changes to swing an hour before they tee off in the first round of the European Tour event. And, and it was just fascinating. The guys reflecting and they all said that they, they, when the best players, they all they, they never seen the best players grinding it out in the range. Uh, and I think there's there's a time and a place for the range. You know, if you, if you are, but I love the, the kind of purpose there that you guys talked about, Yeah, going for a purpose. And do you think that's do you think that's linked to a little bit of the kind of space where you know ten thousand hour rules get your get your reps in get the volume in? You've just thrown a grenade into the conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's mentioned that phrase. Off the go. <laughs> Peter, Peter knows what he's doing here right now. He's, he's, <laughs> he's um, yeah. Oh, just just for a bit of background, Cordy, my my PhD looked at looked at deliberate practice. We okay. we we went deep into that space and um, to actually identify identify it and its merits. And uh, our our work and there's a, one of those papers I spoke about. Our work was one of the first. We still haven't seen. So I'm always a little careful of saying this because there might maybe one that I'm not aware of. But we actually. We, we we actually have gone and measured deliberate practice while it's happening. So the early work by, with Ericsson, that brilliant paper in, from 93, a lot of that work and the subsequent work that was looked to challenge it has, has a lot to do with retrospective recall, as I'm sure you're aware. So we, we looked at it actually to, to see could we measure it in situ as it's happening and to determine the true characteristics of it to to see could we Add a little bit of weight to what Ericsson was saying. Um, long story short, w- we found that he was actually spot on. And a lot of the studies that have criticized his work, the, the criticism we would have back at those studies is that they actually, they, they weren't in a deliberate practice space. And as, as I'm sure, again, you all we will be aware of, deliberate practice is a very definitive activity and it is based around something that is relevant to overall performance improvement. And if it's and if what you're doing is not relevant to overall performance improvement and it's motivated with while being effortful and not immediately rewarding and not inherently enjoyable, well then it's not deliberate practice. Uh, it might be something else, it might be close to it, but it's not what Ericsson and his colleagues were were talking about. And it was interesting when we when when we've gone with the the, the work we're doing still, in fact, still engaged in it. We found that he was actually correct. When you actually reduce it down to what deliberate practice was meant to be, well, it is all those things. And it's even further enhanced when you bring reflective practice into the space. Um, So the 10,000 hour rule, and I was actually stunned. There was some video that was doing the rounds there a couple of days ago from some golf golf coach, I think it was, uh, around some, I think it was some debate around caddies or the role that caddies have. I'm not too sure. I, I, I've been away, so I kind of came to the party a little late. 
but I was I was absolutely stunned to hear the ten thousand hour rule being cited and uh, and and also being cited in the way of th- this great work by by Malcolm Gladwell and that and that for me that that's a tricky thing for me to to reconcile with to be perfectly honest because when you consider even Malcolm Gladwell himself has very publicly and very respectfully apologized for how he led an entire generation of readers and coaches down down the garden path with with what he has admitted himself was just a throwaway kind of title on a chapter you know mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't exist it's never existed it was never even in the original 1993 paper nor any of the simon work nor the chase work that went before him nor any of this work and and yet we're in 2018, nine years after Outliers and Bounce and all of these books, and yet people are still citing the 10,000-hour rule. And the reason I find it tricky to reconcile is that there's also now plenty of blogs and vlogs and you name it, newspaper articles that have that have made people aware of the fact that it's not a, it's not a case, it's not something, and yet we still have people citing it. And it's just it's just incredible. And, and you're right, Peter, to bring it up because it is such a it, it's aggressively detrimental to performance to think that it is a measurable yeah. hourly rate to expertise. Yeah. I've got I got a lot of golfers, you know, sent me. I've got to get my reps in, you know, like, oh, no, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I fired you off on one. Yeah, probably. Uh, I, you I knew what it. you were doing. <laughs> I, I come across it quite a lot in, in the coaches that I, that I work with. I used to get incredibly frustrated and try and prove them that they were there wasn't a rule. Now I now I try and make it as a positive that at least they understand the amount of time that's required to to become an mm-hmm. expert and and try and reframe their yeah. thoughts around it around well, actually what is deliberate practice. Actually, it's not exactly ten thousand. It could be. Could be five thousand, could be fifty, fifteen thousand, depends on the individual. And actually, then go. Here's the paper. Actually, spend some time reading it and 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 find out what the the detail is behind it. But yeah, it, it is it is frustrating. But I think once you once you challenge people and actually explain to them the actually mm-hmm. this is the reality of it. It's been kind of misinterpreted. I think people are 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 more open to some of the messaging because you know for if I was to tell you oh you've got to do ten thousand hours and and you know, it's got to be a deliberate practice. That's quite daunting for people. So when actually you say to them, "Oh, well, actually, it could be less, but it might be more," then that uh, that kind of opens their minds a little bit more. And, and admittedly, too, it, it it is. I agree with you both. It is a great space for for conversation with people because it it is. You know, thanks to Ericsson, he he brought the whole space of expertise to the public space through Malcolm Gladwell. Do you know what I mean? Like very few people would have read and still probably statistically very few people have actually read the entire 1993 paper. And, I, and part of me, I don't blame them. It's a behemoth of a paper. Um, but still paraphrasing, you know, causes issues. But part of the reason I, I kind of like the debate too is that it gives me an opportunity to talk to people about, well, you know what? You can radically reduce those hours if your practice is loaded and layered with context and relevance <laughs> and it's just the 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 more the more we can simulate what you're looking for in practice the quicker you're going to get to where you want to go and the less hours 
of and, and the less beam counting you're going to have to do. And that's that's an exciting space because then, as you said, you're 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 right, Ali. The, you have a point of reference then for people, you know, and and it's almost like that card. You, you know, ten thousand hours, great. You know what? We can do it in eight. We can do it in six. We can do it in four. Whatever, pick a number. But it'll all come down to how how good the quality of practice mm. that that you're engaged in is going. That's what's going to determine it more than anything else. Yeah, and, and let's define that good quality engaged practice. Because you know, obviously, there's a lot of a lot of time involved to get to any level of expertise, and you know, some people might think when when they hear quality practice, they might think in, in the golf space specifically. Well, like well, I'm going to go through my pre-shot routine on every on every uh, ball that I hit, right? And that is good quality practice. I don't think that's the case, but have you guys explain what you would want to see in that good quality? I, I, I'll, I'll jump in if that's okay. First, I think for me, good quality practice is when, and I agree with you, Cordy, and you're spot on to say it, it it's less about the routine. Have you done the regrip twice? Have you tugged on your trouser leg once? Have you done your, you know what I mean? That pre-shot routine, the, the uh, you know, if something emerges quite organically fine but if it's something that it holds you then we get into the space of between of it being routine and or versus superstition so for me good quality practice is when i when there is complete and utter engagement from the athlete and i know that might be a kind of a sitting on the fence way of putting that even as i said it myself but it but it really is it's it's when as a coach you you you're not needed because the practice is in, so engaging that they're just locked in a in a series of problem solving decision making what whatever it is puzzle 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 solving scenarios which again depending on the sport and golf being being the the point of interest here that that they feel that um requirement of engagement over every shot and and it's almost to make sure that the radar is absolutely on red hot high for junk training that there are no wasted shots and i'm, I'm working with a guy at the moment absolutely brilliant guy for his his appreciation and understanding about of about what quality is and he he goes on about he's like how well uh, you know i now in a space where he says ed i'm in a space now where one of my shots is worth 20 of the guys that i see on tour because where i once was was just ball after ball after ball. Whereas now I feel every, every if if I if I can reduce my my the amount of shots I can I can have to improve the likelihood of being being fresh on the first tee and so on and so forth. And back to what you were saying, Peter. You know the, the top guys did not live on the range. You know they if they 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 wouldn't go to Sophie. And you gave me some great examples the last time we were chatting. We were chatting just the guys who, you know, it's. I'm not going to find it there. If I couldn't find it in the middle of competition and so on and so forth, well, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to make sure if I want to find it in that space, I'm going to have to make sure my practice is as close to that as possible to maximize the likelihood of that transferring. You know, so that for me is what good quality practice looks like, feels like, smells like. Mm-hmm. So, like, just uh, some of the stuff that I got from the masters was the. The guys talked about getting kind of more used to the golf courses, the grasses, the the greens, uh, and one described walk, watching down the range 
uh, players beside him hit shots and he was like, they are never going to hit that shot in this golf course, so why are they practicing it? <laughs> never. You know, he's, he said, you know, it was a kind of shorter golf course, tight, you're going to hit two iron, long irons off the tee. He's hitting two iron stingers to, to repre- represent like what he's trying to play in the golf course and he's watching guys hitting bomb and drive and he's like, they're just wasting their time. So, yeah, if you are going to go and play a golf course, you know, hit the shots that you're going to hit on that golf course. You know, yeah. try and try and replicate those shots. Uh, one of the things to be to be to be to be per- perfectly honest, I you know, especially now in recent years in the in the golf space, when I've been really impressed with how golfers respond to this type of an approach. There's the amount of creativity, and I think this is something we've even discussed in the past, uh, Pete. Again, when when you actually engage them in the, in this in this approach, and not in the mindless rep after rep approach, yep. my God, they they're impressive. They, the creativity, and again, because we see we see them play, we see them have creativity on the golf course in competitions and on the on the TV when we see them doing spectacular shots and figuring out great ways and escape shots. But then they don't practice in that kind of way. And yet when we encourage them to practice in that kind of way, it's impressive. It's really impressive with the ideas they come back with. But they've got to, but but unless they're being encouraged and asked about that, then they may never find out that they're they're that good at it, essentially, you know? I think uh I think from my perspective, more general perspective on, on what good good quality practice is, I think it has to be purposeful whether that's uh, with a longer-term learning objective in mind um, or it might be a very specific short-term achievement that they want to have in that practice session. I think one of the biggest factors in in good quality practice is in the environment in which people practice in. I think if you you spend a lot of time in the range, then you're going to be exposed to very little stimuli, which is you're going to struggle to transfer onto the golf course. So, you know, Practicing, um, practicing in, in different environments, and that could be physical environments. It could be with other people. Um, it could be with distraction. It could be with and without coach. How the coach sets up the environment um, and gets the engagement of the athlete. It's multifactorial, but well, but certainly from from what I see in, in working with elite athletes, it's it's how either the coach sets up the environment or how the athlete themselves sets up and engages with the environment and is purposeful in their practice that really dictates how useful that is to them. How do you create a practice environment that is not boring, that fosters that engagement? I, I agree. It's, I, I think that is the number one thing I, that I always say to people when they ask, like, what is good practice? Well, you, you have to be completely engaged in what you're doing. And it's great to say, and from experience, I, I know what that, that looks like and feels like. However, it's really hard to describe to somebody if they have not experienced that and they aren't really familiar with this learning or practice space. How would you go about describing that to someone? And then how would you go about getting them started on that path to, to kind of get that revelation or have that moment where they, where they get it? When I think of that, cause I've been asked that, that question a few times and, and I always have a stab at it, but I also always veer them towards a, a real pioneer in, in our space of, of practice coaching and, and, and simulation coaching and like, and that, that, that's Dave Allred and the work he's, he's done with in rugby and, and a whole lot of sports. And now in, in golf and in recent years and stuff, his book, the pressure principle go has some really neat 
ways of articulating that about how to set up that type of purposeful practice space in a very practical way, let's say, you know, and and what it, it boils down to what 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 Dave would, you know, speaks about in his book. And you, you, I'm sure you've seen him in interviews and stuff is is trying to is, is trying to connect the athlete, the golfer with the task. Because you can't do you you can't have the golfer doing a task that they themselves aren't connected to, and this goes right back to the Ericsson's work in deliberate practice again of relevance. If the task is not if the if the athlete doesn't get the relevance of the task to their performance, that you will be there all day and they won't connect with it properly. Now they, it'll look like they're doing it and so on and so forth, but as far as it it becoming a new behavior. And you'll get your lovely practice effect that will make it look all shiny and bright on the day of practice. But the performance effect and the learning effect will just not be there. And I think that's one of the key things. Can you can you spend the time to identify with the athlete that it is not just a drill for the sake of a drill? This is because of something you've spoken about. This is something that you've mentioned. This is an observation from your play. This is relevant to where where we're at. And that's why when people ask me about, you know, how do you work in this, that, and they're always stunned when I say, well, I, I, I don't do sessions. I, I don't, and I used, but I can't do, oh, I'll see you for an hour. I just can't. So I work in, in days. I'll see you for a day, two days, three days. <laughs> And we'll spend days together because you, for me anyway, you have to spend that time with the athlete to find out, okay, where is the pressure point? Where is, and when I, when you, when you find that out, that space of what is really relevant to their performance, they'll take it away from you then because you, you'll just, you'll be amazed how they'll devise really good things around that themselves because it's really important to them, but also You'll then be able to identify some really pertinent consequences to the to the practice as well, which is critical because there's consequences in competition all the time, all the time. You miss you miss a you you miss a cut by one. You make no money that week. You you and so on and so. There's consequences everywhere, everywhere in in, in professional golf and in all golf, but the space that that we're we're working in. And I think relevance is the key to trying to, to identify that. Spend time listening to find out what it is they're struggling with and then go to work with the player to come up with something that is going to really pressure test the relevance of that work. And if you're, if you're in that practice space where it's relevant overall performance improvement, where they've connected with it, it's, it's an incredibly rich space then. Yeah, like to give an example from my own coaching, a session on Monday with an assistant pro player, I went to watch him play in competition first and then we created a practice environment around what we discussed and seen, well, I seen in performance. So walked around 18 holes with them. It was fascinating, you know, just his beliefs on where his game was at and then I was like, well, actually... You know, there's actually, in my opinion, it was a short game, you know, and then we, we had a discussion around that and then we, he agreed on that and then we created scenarios for him for two and a half, three hours. And it, it literally, <laughs> it was it was the, and distance control as well, we did a little bit on that. And, and 
with this player in particular, doesn't like consequences, doesn't want them. He's just so driven, he doesn't doesn't see the relevance of them, which is unusual. But it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. okay, there's a goal, get it. We're not, we're not, we're not moving on. So it was basically three up and downs, simplest game in the world. Three up and downs, just I was chucking balls everywhere. You have to get up and down three times in a row, but two of them have to be within four and a half feet. You get one pass, two of them, and you still got to put out, still got to put out, but two of them, four and a half feet, one could be as far away as you wanted. You know, it just has to get three twos in a row. And we we spent at least two hours on that game alone. I just kept pushing them. And uh, how are you feeling? Frustrated. Does this feel like competition? Yeah. And it took us, it must have been two and a half hours in, when we found something that was kind of half technical, you know, like he, I put him on a sandy lie. He's grown up on Gullen, basically, and he, he, his technique, he's just not used to it, you know, and he literally just discussed what was happening, and I didn't tell him what to do. He just figured it out for himself. He was like, okay, right, boom. That was like a five-minute conversation back in the game. Yeah. I think yeah. the one thing I think the one thing that that may be evident in in our just two examples there, uh, Cordy, which is key, and I think, and I, I know this is the same for for Ali. We've spoken about in the past. The routes that we talk about here, they're not quick fixes. Uh. It, it, we're, we're all three of us are very interested in a stay fix, and it's because it, it, it's not about just something quick just to get them out of your way. Like Ali's a full-time, full-time employee in British swimming. So even when they're not in the pool, he's working to try and find a stay fix. Same with what Peter's talking about there, you know, spending hours with people. And a few weeks ago, Stuart Morgan put out a tweet. It was quite funny. And I met him. I actually met him at an event there uh, last week. Like the amount of information and and insights that this guy has is just brilliant. But he, he put out a tweet there recently about Molinari, you know, and the, what he does and the work he's been doing with, with Dave Allred. And, and you know what, if, if, if that's what you're interested in, there's, there are other guys out there who do it, depending on where you are in the world, you know. And he, put, he tagged a few of us onto the tweet. Now, I said to Martha, I was like, you know, I got a bunch of people getting in touch after that tweet. And he was like, oh, that's great. And I said, yeah, it is. But he said, it's very easy to weed them out because you could spot the quick fix guys a mile off, an absolute mile off. Oh, can you do some of that fancy practice stuff for me? And uh, no, no, just just give me something quick. And no, no, I'll work away myself. And you're like, yeah, no, thanks. I'm charging my phone today. Uh, I can't, I can't work with you. Because that's not what this is about. If you're, if you're genuinely looking to change a behavior, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be patient because behavior change. And I, I sound like a broken record. I've said this so often recently. Behavior change is a nightmare. It is an absolute nightmare to change a behavior permanently and, and, and in a way that it actually holds up and is robust under pressure. So for people who are looking for a quick fix around these kind of things, great, great. But I'm certainly not the guy you need to go to <laughs> if you're looking for a quick fix. And I don't think, you know what I mean? And, that you, and that, that's hard. That's hard to build a, a, a service and stuff around that in the world that we live in now when it's all just about Quick fix here, quick fix there. You know, I want it now. I want it five seconds ago. You know, but but in this in elite sports space, behavior change takes time, and it takes a little bit of ingenuity and patience and creativity. But it also, as you were saying, from what you were saying there, Peter, it's a, going through a period of frustration. <laughs> I mean, ready for it. Yeah. Just picking up on 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 some of the stuff that Ed said, I think 
in terms of practice environment, the two things that, that I look for to, to kind of create that environment are, are how representative is it of the, the com- competition space. If you're practicing and it never represents the competition space, then you're unlikely, in my view, to get transferred to that. The second point is, is, is where is the challenge point within your practice? So, so how challenged do you feel within it? Too easy? Is it too hard? Actually, do you set a space in the middle? And actually, that, that space in the middle is probably somewhere you want to be. How you can get to that space are, are things like playing little games, creating problems for, for the player to try and solve. You can use like variability in your practice. So you, you could have either random styles of practice or use of kind of different lies or kind of different positions where your feet are. Use of peers, little competitions. All those things can, can, can change the variability and also the context of practice as well. And and you'll you'll working when you're working with athletes, you very quickly see where it's too easy, and actually where it's an optimal challenge point, and they suddenly become 100% engaged in what they're doing, and then very quickly again you start to understand once you push it a little bit too far, and the skill starts to break down, then you go okay, we've gone a little bit too far there, and that that optimal space is constantly moving as the athlete learns and adapts to to the problems in which you're setting them, mm-hmm. and I think that that's really important that that people are are within their practice space are reflecting actually is it representative and is it challenging me enough or, or do I need to move it on? And just again, picking up on one of the points that Ed says is, is the behavior change. If you're consistently seeing a behavior in competition and it's not shifting with what you're doing in practice, then you really need to look at what the, the practice that you're doing. Is it actually helping to shift the behavior change? And are you spending enough time in, in, in assisting in that behavior change? If I, if I look at, I've I spent probably a large part of my career trying to change techniques, as I would call them. Techniques which were, for me, solidified in competition because of the pressure of competition. And people were trying to change it under low-pressure practice scenarios were just then struggling when they came back to competition. If you want to change something that's breaking down a competition, then you need to try and, and simulate that, that pressure and that experience within the practice environment um, to test as to whether that behavior change is, has, has stuck or not. If you're doing that under low pressure context, then you never actually are challenging the new skill that you've tried try to learn. And, and that's, I see a, that a lot as, as a big mistake as, of what people do in practice, to be honest. I 100% agree with everything that they just said. <laughs> so just, just to add, like something I definitely look for or ask, uh, you know, this is more for people listening, just uh, if you're practice, if you're losing time, some of the, one of the questions we'll always ask is, you know, how long have we been practicing for? <laughs> and if they can if they can nail it on the head an hour, then your practice hmm. provider is probably not very good, the one you've created. Uh, but if if they are if they say half an hour and it's two hours, you've probably nailed it. You know, I, and again I relate that to a good book you've got or a computer game you've played, hmm. you know, time time just disappears. Yeah, you get lost it, in it, don't you? Yeah, it's a kind of that flow state. Yeah. So and you can see it as a practitioner. You can see when they're engaged in the task and maybe it's too difficult. Or, and that's just coaching, isn't it? It's just. I, you can, I think you just hit the nail on the head there as well. And uh, the, uh, about that gauge of when they've lost it. And I think that's one of those key things that that I I know in the past I would not have. I would uh, when I reflect back on some things, I, I, I it, it wins. It makes me wince. It stings because I think it, previously I, I probably would have been quite um, coach 
practice proud. Oh, this is a great thing we're doing uh, because because it must be great because I came up with it, you know. So I'm I'm just watching the task and I'm not watching the athlete. But nowadays I'm much much more engaged and watching actually as you just said there, looking at them. What are they tuning out? But also setting it up for them to, in the blink of an eye, say this isn't working, and for that to be completely okay for them not to think. I'm going to hurt this guy's feelings if I tell him this is a crap game that we're doing, you know? No, tell me the moment you think it's crap because you know what? Uh, We're not out there to waste time. And that stings. But you know what? I prefer that sting than the other one where where you're driving home thinking that was brilliant and all of a sudden you never hear from them again because they're like, you know, actually that wasn't great. So sting me in the middle <laughs> rather than, yeah. and and, that, that, and that's a key that's a key thing. So almost that yeah, you're watching you're watching for them to to you know oh, they're they're not really engaging, but equally for you to feel you know what they're going to tell me because I've set this up in such this this space for them to be to have total ownership. And let's not waste each other's time here and just yeah, I don't get this. No, it's not relevant to me. I don't understand what what you know. Great. Let's go. Let's go back to work and figure out a better way. I have. Uh, if you guys are game to to change topics a little bit, I have a something that I'm super interested in, fascinated by is is a conversation around technique and a conversation around skill and how they relate to each other, if they relate to each other at all, and what you think most people should focus on, whether they should focus on their technique or they should focus on skills. Does that spark any thoughts or any ideas for any of you guys? Oh, yeah, it definitely does for me. I mean, that's, this is something I, I I qualify with with the coaches that I work with quite clearly, and and I see a, a differentiation between technique and skill. And, f- and for me, skill has a desired outcome. It's a series of movements that has a desired outcome. A technique might necessarily have the desired outcome. It could be a way of of moving, either well or not well. So w- when I chat about movement and I chat about technique I would tend to use the word skill because when we think about skill we think about someone who manages to to achieve a, a purpose or a task goal and then that also frames the discussion away from technical instruction and coaching points and actually coaches and and, and people you're working with actually think about it of uh, well what's the outcome that I'm trying to achieve rather than the movements that I'm trying to make and that, that can be a big difference in, in focus for, for me. So, yeah, there's a clear differentiation in my view on that. I completely agree. Completely agree. I think there is that, uh, again, how, how Ali defines it would pretty much be the same way I would define it. I think to just to extend onto, you know, part of what part of your question was, which do you do? I think by the time I, I get to people, they've already, you know, because I'm not a, I'm not a swing coach at all. And so a player will will have his or her swing coach and then they come to me for for the, the, the job of, OK, building an effective practice around the work that they're doing. So when they come to me, it's it's all about the skill. It's not about the, the technique. And I think that's been one of the very rewarding things for me and um, because some of the people I, I, some of the people I, I work with their swing coaches are brilliant at what they do but it's it's also quite separate you know absolutely brilliant some of the insights and some of the things you you pick up from people whose expertise is in the technique side of of it and for in, in our instance here in golf and i think it's essential it's not it's not a, well, essential maybe to be strong, but I think, yeah, maybe essential that 
to work on the skill that you have an appreciation of the work that's gone into the technique and vice versa, you know, so that, you know, that my, the work, the work that I, I do complements the work that the swing coach does, um, which is, which he has, is, you know, uh, again, I think aligns very strongly with what Ali was just saying. I dip my toe in both worlds. So, yeah, I've got players that are just informed practice-wise, you know, learning environment-wise, you know. But mainly most of the players that I work with are kind of technical and, but yeah, so there is technique refinement there. But it's all based around skill, I suppose. (laughs) You know, it's, it's not just optimal movements. It's, but yeah, I've spent, I probably came at it from a personal point of view, I probably came at it because I spent so much time with Graham McDowell from the kind of skill acquisition point of view, coaching, eh, when I first started coaching. And then the last few years, I've dipped my toe in with Mark Bull and biomechanics. And that's interesting from a point of view of what the body can and can't do and 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 how that constrains movement. And I, I find that fascinating as well. But I've probably gone off topic a wee bit there. But, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's... it's- it's hard, I guess. I I give I fall into this trap quite a lot. As when you're a practitioner working in technical sports, you quite often want to look at technique. And I mean, anybody who works in any sport, but I, I can imagine in golf as well. Is is you'll notice when there's there's someone swinging with a technique that you might in class as normal or or see as different. I mean, we're we're as humans, we're attuned to notice difference. And it's hard not to be drawn into and, and look at that and go, oh, that's different. Why is it different? And it sits outside my kind of normal frame of reference. Yeah. And, you know, coaches find that challenging. and Even I find that challenging. But the thing I've, I've started to try and question myself is actually is, is how successful in the outcome is, is that person? Is we can have quite a lot of movement variability within a technique, but actually how much outcome variability is there? Yeah, and you mm-hmm. can have high movement variability and low outcome variability, and that's what I see with the the best people that I've worked with in technical sports, mm-hmm. is they can actually increase their movement variability to yeah. reduce their outcome variability. And the, yeah. for me, it's anecdotal. I have some data on this, but that does differentiate high level athletes versus athletes who still have quite, haven't quite made that breakthrough. So that's de- 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 degeneracy, basically, many ways yeah. to do to solve one problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree, and even see that currently with 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 some some people. Absolutely agree. The the ones who you the ones who I would have consistently seen in other sports who actually become top class are the ones whose technical ability and so on and so forth and the skill they find a way through the variability. It's not so robotic. And I, the horrible word that we put on these type of people, though, is their, their, their natural talent, you know, because I, I, I would see, I'd, I'd completely agree with that. And you can see it, it also in the, uh, the golf space quite a bit, I'd say. I'd see, and you must see it a lot more than me, uh, Peter. Yeah, yeah, I suppose what I was kind of alluding to earlier on as well, the, the kind of injury space as well, you know, like... yeah. Uh, like a scratch handicap I came in a couple of months ago we discussed this all didn't we and basically swinging it quick you know 110 115 and getting a very sore back and and it was his technique you know, how he was moving now his outcome was pretty good but you know, I mean he was mid-30s and you know 
rarely do I do this, but I was like, that this needs to change. Or you're not going to be playing golf in 10, 15 years' time, in my opinion. You know, because yeah. you're hitting five, 600 balls a week. Never seen the guy again, but I'm quite happy that I did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's probably what did, he didn't want to hear that, but yeah, yeah. yeah like, he, he came to me saying, I've got a really sore back. And I'm like, well, this is why it's happening. <laughs> yeah. And a very ingrained movement. So, you know, again, that's back to your behavior. That would take a while to shift. What would be an example of uh, training a skill versus training a, a technique? I think. I think for me, training a technique in, involves a level of, of either instruction from coaches. And, and you know, again, uh, my experience is the sport. You'll get coaches and you'll get technical instructors. And some will, will do uh, both very well and some will actually not do one or the other very well. I think, I mean, if I look at it from a biomechanics perspective, if we're looking at technique and trying to train or refine a technique, the first thing I'll always ask is, is does this actual intervention need to happen? And, and from a biomechanist perspective, we generally look at it from a performance perspective or from an injury prevention perspective. But actually, when you modify something in a technique, you're likely to have a, a, a performance regression for a period of time. So we have to be, we have to be conscious of, of that when, when with the, the, the players or the athletes that we're working with. In, is, this elite, of, is this elite athletes? Sorry about an yeah, Is this, this all elite? Well, I would say it applies to everyone, really. It's, it's, it's not just elite. I think, you know, your mid-handicap golfer that may come to you like is really to ask him, do you, does that technique need to change? Because there's an investment of time required there. So do they have the patience and, and the, the commitment to be able to do that? Because their score may drop over a period of time and that be, might, might be quite frustrated for them. Or yeah. actually, are they, are they looking for something that might be actually a more of a, a skill intervention? So it might be more of a, a, a focus of attention or a, a constraint that you put upon them where you're not necessarily changing the technique, but you're modifying their thought processes or what they're doing in order to achieve the, achieve the outcome. So I, I think in order to achieve the desired outcome or, or to have the skill level, do they have the, I guess what I would call the fundamental scaffolding or, or mm-hmm. basics of the technique in order to achieve that? And if they don't, then for me, a technical intervention needs to occur. If they do have the fundamental basics, then actually then maybe some variability of practice or variability around those basics so that they're able to achieve that that skill more successfully and more often might be a, a better way to go. I, I think I think when I, I, again I'd agree with I'd agree with Ali on, on all of that. I, I think when I think of the difference between technique and skill from a practice perspective, I, I, I think of the practice schedule and the type of definitions of practice schedules that are available to us. And I kind of, I'm drawn to the, you know, that, that academic test or text of Schmidt and Lee when the motor control and learning, when, you know, if I'm thinking technique, I'm thinking of segmentation and fractionization. I'm thinking of breaking it down, essentially. If I'm thinking of skill, I'm thinking of p- completeness of the task. And I think that's a guide that I would, that I would use, let's say, um, to try and determine where the work is needed to be done is it something that needs you know as i said some form of chaining of the task or is it something that which for me would lead to technique work or is it something that the completeness of the task is still survives that thinking and if that's the case well then that that'd be more back into that skill space 
but you could you could go really deep into the kind of technique stuff as well. This is my opinion, but and, and we're doing a little bit of write up as well on this with, with the book uh, with uh, Graham and Ian Renshaw, where the actually understanding the individual in front of you. You know, I'm gonna I'm just gonna talk about what we're gonna write in the book, but like Ian came to Scotland last year. I interviewed him for about an hour and a half on the way up the car. You know, he had a torn right shoulder. I'd seen him play golf and played 18 holes with him the day before. He's got a big slice. And the technical intervention took five minutes. It was just two and a half, well, it was a stick in front of him, hit around that, and hit swing at 50%. And he was hitting draws instantly. And, and that has stuck. You know, so... To me, it's understanding the individual in front of you and the sports they've played and then the analogies and how you, how you can quickly attune to them. You know, how can you relate to them without making it complicated yeah. and not breaking down the movement that they've got? Even that example you've given there, and I, I would only know of e, of, of e, and I've never met him, but I would know of, uh, of him because a lot of the people I would know know him and, uh, and so mm-hmm. on sports. So even the work that you would have done with him there and an appreciation of the, the skill set that he would have had from other sports and so on and so forth. But the uptake of somebody like like an Ian who has that appreciation of of, of what you're doing to him, you know, of yeah. what you're trying to do. So his capacity to lock in to the pertinent points of what you're doing would be far superior to most, I would suspect, because he, he completely gets what you're trying to do and, and knows, okay, this is this is the important part, I need to listen up here, you know, and then we'll be able to take it away with them to and, and know how to maintain that and would also be very cognitively aware of, oh, oh yeah. no, that's the old stuff that's kind of creeping, you know? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's why someone like him, and I'm not surprised, I've never met the guy, that that something small but important and relevant like you did is stuck with them, you know? Yeah. But but that's the ta- that's the tricky so, thing then for people so, who would not have that so depth of experience as he does. Flip that, Cordy, can we do what we did with you about four years ago then? Tell the boys the story of what we did with you four years ago. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So can you remember what we did? <laughs> <laughs> four years Basically, ago. You- was it four? Was it four or five years? Well, no, no, no. wasn't it? You're talking about when I was over there for the constraints day, yeah? No, 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 no. Remember, you were having a slice, and I gave you a task. And oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that was probably four years ago then. Yeah, yeah well. I mean, the the story of that was I was uh, hitting the ball short and a slice off the tee, and Pete, you know, very smartly just had me go play two balls outside of seventy five yards, one a fade and one a draw, and um, after about oh, I don't know, three rounds. I figured out how to hit a draw, first of all, <laughs> which, which took a while. And then I started hitting it, you know, 20 yards further, 30 yards further. So a huge difference, huge difference. And it was just because I spent some time, I, I spent some quality, you know, quality time trying to figure it out. And I failed that, uh, you know, pretty much the entire first, I don't remember exactly if it was three, five rounds, whatever it was, but like, I, I couldn't do it. And then eventually figured out uh, something that worked for me and then, you know, saw a big change and was able to bring that to a performance environment. But I think one thing that you just identified there is something that I think myself and Ali and Pete have talked at different times is you were given sufficient enough information 
to then go away and the big word coming, explore with it. And I think that's a key part of any good coach athlete relationship. That 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 appreciation of letting the athlete go away and explore and 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 and, and figure stuff out without constant feedback and constant, you know, oh no, no, left this down, no, no, right this down, no, actually. I'd never seen a swing, never, like we just gave right. him a, a task of like, it was a score, score base, try and score this with a fade, try and score this with a draw, out with mm. 75 yards, you play right. that shot, and, and I remember a messenger, you were going, I'm struggling with this, I just said, keep going, keep doing it, keep doing it, and then you, I've got the screenshot, remember I did it in a presentation, and Cordy was, came back and he was like, I've had a draw and it's going longer. And I was like, that self-organization under constraints. And he was like, oh my God, so is. Yes. <laughs> well, my, my question is always then, Pete, of like, whenever I'm talking to someone, my, you know, my temptation is like, I, I love that methodology so much because it's just my personality as I love struggling. <laughs> and like, yeah. so it just, I, I resonate with that so well. However, that might not be everybody that, you know, giving somebody a technique to help, you know, speed up that process. Yeah. Like talk, talk to me about that because that's, that's really difficult, right? Like when do you choose to change the technique to speed up that process? You know, when do you choose to let someone just fight it out and just, you know, struggle? Like, how do you how do you make that decision? Oh, I mean, if I'm being brutally honest, it's you know, I live in a commercial world as well. You know, my lessons are one two hours. I've not got days with with guys like like Ollie and and Ed. So sometimes it's difficult. I relate it to sometimes you have to dip your toe into their world. So. I'll give you an example. A player that I worked with in my first year or two years who'd come through a talent development environment that was highly structured and highly rigid, and I threw him in absolute chaos and lost him. I mean, there was arguments, fights in the golf course, the two of us, well, not fight, physical fights, but there was, there was, there was a lot of conflict there. If I get that same player now, I will dip my toe into their world first and then ease them out of it. So, yes, I'll maybe do some technical stuff with them, but it'll be very light, but but just to keep the conversation going. That's similar to experiences of mine from years ago. I remember the first time I met I met Rick Shuttleworth, I don't know how many years ago now, and and just the, uh, it was like the parting of the, <laughs> parting of the seas moment, you know, when all of a sudden you're aware of, of of just a better way of working you know something that is not so so rigid so so tight in one sense but something that is actually adaptable and and malleable with what's in front of you you know and i know rick now talks about his cut bleed and bandage you know that he does and i remember that that idea in you know what you just said there peter i remember like when i think back of some things i i would have done years ago when yeah, I, I was trying to do too much in the space, as you said. It was, it was led terribly one-sided. Let's say you know, yeah. and it is it, to answer that. You know, from my perspective, to answer that question of how how do you know when to do this and when to do it for more or less, and that's that's down to the kind of good old-fashioned just just chat. You know, keep keep the lines of communication open so. So that you're able to know, because I think if we start looking for a systematic way to do it, 
uh, we're back in, we're, we're in trouble again. We're all of a sudden saying, well, this is what it says in the book and I did it and it doesn't work. And you know, you're like, well, you know what? The book had to finish somewhere. So after 200 pages, the editor was like, look, we got to wrap this up, you know, because if the book was actually to give you all the possibilities and all the things and whatever, it would have been about 250 million pages. But we tend to read books looking for answers. And I think the really good books that I've read in the past are books that have not actually given me answers, but have actually given me a method to learn how to learn. And I think that's that's really critical for a coach to not look for not look for answers and, and almost say to your to say, say to the players that you work with and the athletes you work with, you know, we're, we're going to figure this out together. <laughs> because if you're thinking I am the oracle for with all the answers, this is going to be this is going to be too painful a process because no one has all the answers and you, and you're different. You're going to be different tomorrow, let alone how, how different you are to the, the guy next to you, you know. But if everyone's engaged with the uh, that space of, OK, let, let's work together and it's a partnership and we're going to figure this out together and we're going to, you know, then I think those moments that you spoke about, Cordy, about, well, when do you say stop that and move on to something else? And when do you then it, then it becomes much more of a, a joint decision and, and, and something much more rich can come out of that as opposed to. Well, the only person who has to say in this matter is the coach, because the coach is all knowing. And that's just I just don't see that um, being the case. Yeah, I think uh, it's saying there, it is a partnership. I think one of the points that, that, that Peter raised is is stepping into their world is really important. I'd, I'd certainly want to see the, the performer in competition and understand what things look like within the, the competition or, or the, the, the challenge or that perspective, what, what it looked like. Because you can see some things in practice that are just completely different in competition. So particularly from, from a behaviors perspective. And it's not often technical and in inverted commas or it's not often kind of physical issues. It can be in, in a sport like golf, it can be hugely related to kind of psychological or pressure related aspects. So pressure can do can can change behavior hugely and can have a, a huge impact on on kind of motor control and kind of motor abilities so what may seem obvious might have a, a a greater kind of depth to it you know i remember working with an archer who was who was in her in her mid-30s had had five olympic games behind her and you know would would shoot some of the highest practice scores you'd ever see for a female athlete and as soon as she came to competition she had a choke, probably something similar to to the yips, and we we tried for for ages to 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 put in a technical intervention uh, within the practice environment, but as soon as it came to competition, it just never transferred. And actually, on reflection, within what we were doing, we were actually probably making her less confident in her technique, and actually not assisting her to to deal with the the issue that she directly had within competition, rather than focusing on on the issue and the actual root cause of it, which which had happened many, many years before. So I think kind of my example was was based around it actually mightn't just be as obvious as, as you kind of think is, is what you see in the surface is there can be a lot of things which can cause performance impact. The things you say that just while you got, while you got, while, you, while the call dropped there, I was just saying that there's a need for more of a team-like experience around an athlete because there's so many variables that feed into performance it shouldn't be the 
responsibility of a single coach to be able to handle all of the requirements of the athlete and that's like what you're saying there you know it's such a multivariate situation it mightn't be one thing it might be something completely different and if there's someone in the team who can deal with that effectively well great well this has been a good chat guys we've we've chatted for a while here let's wrap it up like this if there any way if folks want to get in touch or say say thank you or learn more from from you guys what's the best way for folks to do that pete i will do yours later i'll get it from you but uh ed and ollie what do you guys got uh yeah i look i as of a couple of years ago i'm i'm on twitter so people can get me there at uh, dr skill act d-r-s-k-i-l-l-a-c-q and i'm always happy to engage people i have a website skillact.com drskillact.com i think it is um, and again there's a contact place there and as i say you know the, with i'm always i'm always always happy to just chat with with people whatever their level or standard because there's always there's always something to take away from it so uh in that regard more so than ever before i'm i'm always just inter- in, interested in engaging with with different people in different spaces so happy to happy to follow up with people yeah, and and for me, Twitter is is probably the the, the best uh, best platform to get me on. My Twitter handle is at Ollie Logo, so that's O L L Y L O G O. So you can just message me on there or DM me on on that, and uh, yeah, more than happy to to come back to people with uh, answers to any questions or, or queries that may have. I travel quite a lot with with swimming as well, so probably due to be in the US for for kind of ten days in around February. So if anybody wants to meet up or have a chat or grab a coffee, then yeah, more than happy to do that. Love it. Thank you guys for hopping on. Pete, thanks for getting this together. This was fantastic. Yeah, if you guys ever ever need anything or have anything else to share, whether it's a new project or study or something you're working on that you, you want to talk about, just uh, holler anytime. Great. Well, Cordy, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you, albeit on- online. Yes. As I said. And and thank you, uh, but also thanks for the contributions you're making through your through the God Science Lab. Really, it, it's it's great. It, it's important stuff to be getting out there. So keep up the good work, man. Thank you much. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank, thanks, loads, Cordy. It was uh, it was really great chatting. Uh, I thought there was some really good discussion there. And uh, yeah, from what I've from what I've heard of the the podcast so far, some really great stuff. So I'm excited to. Decided to listen to the rest of it and catch up on old episodes. So there you yeah. go. There you go. You got to go back to the first episodes. Was it? I will. Three <laughs> years ago with with Pete and Graham, we did a couple yeah, episodes. Missed, missed that part. Which th- those those episodes are legendary at this point. Um, oh, excellent! I look forward to that. Yes. Yes, they're good. Um, anyways, thanks for hanging out this evening, guys. Appreciate it, and we will talk soon. Hopefully. Bye. Cheers. Guys. Cheers.